You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, and my co-host, Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have Money Supermarket, Nestle, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Centrica, Coca-Cola HBC, and Daddy Coke listed in the States. Sam, should we start with Money Supermarket? Yes. So Money Supermarket, it's a business we've covered several times before. They have come out with their full year results and they've announced that group revenue was up 22% to 387.6 million. Profit after tax was up 33% to 69.3 million. Basic earnings per share was up 30% to 12.7p a share. Operating cash flow was up 59% to 104.4 million. Net debt was down to 37.2 million. Dividend per share was flat at 11.71p a share. And they've said that where the revenue grew 22%, this was 8% excluding cash back, which was massively helped by acquisitions in the year, with strong performance in money and travel channels, and despite the closed energy switching market. The gross profit margin was down about 3%, which was driven by the expected impact of the Quidco consolidation, and that was the acquisition they had in the cashback segment. In terms of the revenue by segment, insurance for the last three quarters of the year, revenue growth was 11%, and that compares to 8% for the full year. The money segment was 10% for the quarter, and that compares to 37% for the full year. Home services was 22% growth for the quarter, and that compares to a 42% decline for the full year, mainly due to the closure of the energy switching market. Travel was up 55% for the quarter, and that compares to 265% for the year. And cashback doesn't have a comparative as it's the first year that it's been in there. They've said that in insurance, our car revenue returned to growth for the first time in 2022 with improving trends in switching in market switching volumes. Travel insurance grew strongly with revenue almost 50% higher than 2019. In money, there was continued strong growth in banking due to the availability of attractive products. Borrowing was broadly flat year on year, although conversion in loans softened amid higher credit pricing. In home services, attractive provider offers drove good growth in home comms. The energy switching market remained closed. Travel saw robust demand and continued to recover with revenue around half of pre-pandemic levels. And they've said in the outlook, the first few weeks of 2023 have been similar trend, have seen similar trends as in Q4 in insurance and money. As previously guided, the ongoing conditions in the energy market mean it's unlikely that switching will return in 2023. On this basis, the board is confident of delivering market expectations for the year. And there are a few things in the slides. Yes, they've said that for travel insurance, sales volume was at 85% of 2019 levels in Q4, and they expect the recovery to continue into 2023. For the full year, they've estimated that the group customer savings that they've helped create are 1.8 billion, and that compares to 1.6 billion in 2021. Their net promoter score is flat at 72. The marketing margin is down from 61% to 57%. Their active users is up from 10 million to 11.1 million. Revenue per active users down from £16.90 a user to £16.40. And 
their cross-channel inquiries are up from 19% to 21%, which means people are basically using the starting more people are using the platform for more than one thing. Interestingly, so we, we sort of already touched on this, but in terms of the revenue per segment, insurance was up from 150 8.7 to 172 money was up from 75 to 103 home services was down from 68 to 39 travel was up from 4.1 to 14.9 cashback was up from 10.6 to 57.6 so in total revenue was up from 316 to 387 million i just think that's worth highlighting because despite the fact that home services is such a large chunk of the business and that's been absolutely hammered this is something we've talked about in the past, but because it is quite a well-diversified business, it's not really, you know, it, it's still had a pretty good year, despite the energy switching market being completely closed, which was about 20% of their business. In terms of the valuation, the business trades a price-to-earnings ratio of 16.53 and trades a yield dividend yield of 5.03%. I think these are a pretty decent set of results. It's a business that I like. It's a business that I used to own, and I certainly wouldn't be against owning it in the future. I think the yield's very attractive. And I think as well, the valuation's pretty reasonable, especially considering at some point in the next couple of years, you would expect that the energy switching market's going to come back, and most of that's just going to flow straight through into the top, into the bottom line. John, what are your thoughts on these results and money supermarket as a business? I thought they they were very good results. And I suppose you're seeing things like the cost of living crisis pushing people to look at more of these price comparison websites. We've also had the return of the travel. And even without the energy, it's it's done well. And like you say, I, I you would expect it to come back, the energy to or the energy price comparison, the market to return at some point, hopefully for money supermarket shareholders in the nearer term. And yeah, in terms of valuation, for these sorts of numbers, I don't think it's bad, actually. In fact, I quite like it. I know you'd you'd tried to talk me into uh, buying shares in it a, a, a year or so ago, and I've been a bit more reluctant, but I think you're seeing those uh, all of those things feed through now. Yeah, well, I actually um, sold it at some point in the last year. I can't remember when. So I wasn't sure if I still held it when I checked these results. Um, so I had to check my portfolio because I, I thought it might be gone and it wasn't in there anymore. How's the share I, price been doing? It's not, it's not really moved. The reason I sold it, it wasn't really anything to do with the business. It was more just the opportunity cost. And I think although I quite liked it, I didn't think I was going to add to it in the near future because I'd held it quite a while and it hadn't done particularly well. And I'd invested quite a bit of money since then. It was quite a small portion of my portfolio. So I just thought rather than just sort of track this position that's like not really worth very much to me i'm probably better selling it and having more of something that i do want yeah i I wouldn't be against getting back in in the future though because i I do like the business a lot next should we move on to nestle a favorite yeah it is a favorite of the show it's becoming a favorite of mine too Nestle, one of the world's largest consumer goods companies and owner of nescafe and espresso had their full year results out recently with full year sales reaching 94.4 billion swiss francs driven almost exclusively by higher prices helping the group offset cost inflation on an organic basis sales rose 8.3 percent with both developed and emerging markets performing strongly whilst volumes fell by 1.7 percent purina pet care was the biggest single contributor to the organic growth with revenue of 
up 14.5%. Coffee also proved resilient with revenue up 8.1% and nutrition returned to high single digit growth. In terms of geography, organic growth came in at 10.3% in North America with sales of 26.3 billion Swiss francs. Europe saw growth of 7.2% with sales of 19.1 billion Swiss francs and Asia 8.2% and sales of 18.5 billion Swiss francs, Latin America 13.1% and 11.8 billion Swiss francs and Greater China 3.5% and 5.4 billion Swiss francs. Underlying operating margins fell 40 basis points to 17.1%, ignoring the, the effects of exchange rates reflecting higher costs. Despite this, underlying operating profit grew 6.5% to 16.1 billion Swiss francs. Net debt stood at 14.2 billion Swiss francs on the 31st of December, compared with 32.9 billion a year earlier, with the group undertaking a share buyback. And this equates to nearly two and a half times EBITDA. Going forward, the group expects organic sales to grow between 6 and 8% and underlying profit margins of between 17 and 17.5% for the next financial year. In terms of valuation, Nestle has a market cap of 291 billion Swiss francs, which is roughly 257 billion pounds, and trades at 22 times forward earnings, which is roughly in line with their 10 year average. And it has a prospective dividend yield of just under 3%. We both, I think, really like the company. It's very geographically diversified, with 58% of the revenue from develop- the developed world and then the remaining 42% from the emerging markets with excellent growth potential. And we've seen that it can clearly withstand the inflationary pressures, and that's really a tribute to its brands. I know we saw Terry Smith recently, and he made the point that he likes businesses that can be run by an idiot on the basis that they at some point will be. I think Nestle is one of those companies. It does have, or it has delivered, very decent growth, and it has that portfolio of extremely strong brands. I suppose the difficulty with a high-quality company like this is its valuation, and 22 times forward earnings is certainly not cheap. I think you're going to say, Sam, that with this sort of growth and that sort of valuation, you might not be willing to pay up for it. I certainly struggle and I do own other, well, a few other consumer goods companies like Unilever and they are a fair bit cheaper. But in recent years, the numbers, oh, well, yeah, the the numbers haven't quite matched Nestle's, which probably justifies that slightly more toppy valuation. But yeah, I haven't come to terms with paying up for it just yet, although it's a business that I would at some point like to own. What are your thoughts? Yeah, pretty similar. I, mean, I, I think Nestle is a very good watch list stock. It's 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 always good enough for the watch list, but I think just find trying to actually get it cheap <laughs> enough that's the issue. I I think these are, these are good results, and what what I like about Nestle is the consistency. Where every time we've covered it, it's put up. You know, I, I don't think it's had a bad quarter or a bad six months in the time that we've covered it. However, these results are not as good from memory is the latest Reckitt results or the latest Unilever results. I think that's partly because Unilever's had a lower base to work off in that it's had a yes. number of years of poor performance. So going into this period, it probably does have more like 
more scope to raise prices just because it's been poorly managed for a, for a while now, I would say. But even so, Unilever is by far the cheaper business. It's at what, like 17, 18 times earnings compared to 22. And it's putting up better results. I think Nestle is fantastic and I do love the brands, but I would want to see it at more of a discount. It's as much as I love the business, it's just at 22 times earnings. It's growing 8%, but that's in an inflationary environment. This would normally be a business where I think you'd be fairly happy if it was growing 5% a year. And I think the problem is at 22 times earnings, you need a lot of 5% a years before it actually starts to look like a reasonable valuation. Although that being said, the, the dividend's not bad though, it's 2.8%. So if you're buying it for the income, you could maybe try and justify it to yourself a bit more. But great yeah. business, but I just don't like the valuation. Yeah. And there's not a lot they can do about that. No, no, that's the problem with good businesses is people <laughs> tend to think the same. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Good business or not, hard grease lands there. Oh, well, depends who you ask, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, <laughs> Definitely it's something does. We have disagreed on. It's a stock that I own, regrettably, actually, based on the performance. But anyway, they have, well, hard grease lands for anyone who doesn't know, it's the platform manager for investing. It's the biggest one in the UK. So I imagine a large proportion of the listeners of this podcast have heard of it. So they have come out with their six-month results for the year ended 31 December 2022. And they've announced net new business of $1.6 billion, which is a 30% drop from the $2.3 billion they had in the half last year. Total assets under administration are down 10% to $127.1 billion, although they are actually up slightly from where they were six months ago, but year on year they're down. And that's mainly just due to decline in asset prices within the platform. So it's not really because of outflows, it's more because of stuff that people are buying has gone down. Revenue was, however, up 20% to $350 million. Profit before tax was up 31% to $197.6 million. Diluted earnings per share was up 29% to 33.1p a share. And the dividend per interim dividend was up 3.6% to 12.7p a share. CEO Chris Hill mentioned as part of his statement, we welcomed a further 31,000 net new clients over the period, taking our total client numbers to 1.77 million, with client retention increasing to 92.4%. This is a couple of percent, he, he didn't say this, I'm saying this, but just for reference, this is probably a couple of percent lower than AJ Bell's, which is about 94-95%. Our focus remains on engaging with clients and helping them to navigate the challenging backdrop. There were a few points in the slides. First one was I didn't I knew they were the biggest by far, but they've actually got a forty-two percent share of the direct consumer market. I didn't realise it was that high, although it doesn't particularly surprise me. In terms of the assets under administration on the platform, fifty-nine point five billion and this is of assets under administration of 127. So $59.5 billion was invested in funds, and that's down from $68 billion a year ago. $47.4 billion was in shares, and that's down from $54 billion a year ago. $14.5 billion was in cash, and that's up from 12.8% a year ago. And $5.6 billion was in active savings, up from $3.5 billion a year ago. They've said that increases in the cash held in investment accounts and base rate increases is what's driven the revenue increases. So basically, people are holding more cash in the accounts and Hargreaves Lansdowne are getting more money for that cash. Mm. 
which is so in a rising interest rate environment, this actually could be a business that does very, very well. Um, <laughs> they've talked about in the 2023 focus, they've said dial up active savings. Their focus has been to increase marketing with rates and momentum and developing functionality, including payments. And in terms of delivery, they've said scaled active savings business. They scaled the active savings business to reach 6.3 billion assets under administration, making it the largest retail savings platform in the UK. Another focus was to launch new Hargreaves Lansdowne funds, including three HL managed fund portfolio funds in March. And they've successfully launched this half, the Hargreaves Lansdowne US fund and the conversion of the Hargreaves Lansdowne UK income fund, managing 591 billion and 1.8 billion of assets under administration, respectively. I, again, I think this is an area where they could do very, very well, because if you're using their platform and then they're steering you towards their own funds, they can get another couple of percent out of you then. And... In terms of the offering that they've got, they've got a slide where they've said that in the year they've had 120 million digital visits. The help desk has taken over 700,000 calls and emails. They've helped transact over 10 million trades with 8.1 million transactions, and they've had 1.1 million app visitors. But the other thing I wanted to mention was that I, as well as an investor, I used Hargreaves Lansdowne as a customer, and I got an email a few days ago. So we're recording this on the 13th of March, 2023. I got an email a few days ago saying that the fees for my lifetime ISA were getting slashed in half, mm. pretty much slashed in half. Now, as a customer, I've got no issue with that. As a shareholder, it's not something I particularly like to see because one thing that we, John and I have argued about is whether or not they have any actual pricing power or if it's the fees are just doing a race to zero. And I've, I've argued I think they have some pricing power because of the scale that they've got and, you know, they've got the best app and stuff. If they're reducing fees, that suggests that I'm more likely to be the one that's wrong than John. And it's something to keep an eye on, but the minute the LISA, it, it may be that that's to go after the people who are on like free trade and trading 212, so the younger end of the market, because the LISA is a product that's only for, I think it's 18 to 39 to set one up. They haven't, as far as I'm aware, reduced it in any other any of my other Hargreaves Lansdowne accounts. It's just my LISA, but it, it's a concern for me. So yeah, in terms of the valuation, the business trades at P ratio of 14.67 and has a dividend yield of 5.11%. I I don't really know how I feel about this business as a shareholder. I act, the results are starting to do a bit better in terms of the revenue. However, it's I, it's not nice to see assets under under administration going down, especially given that a huge part of my argument with John has been, well, even if the fees do come down, if the assets under administration keeps going up, they can find other ways to monetize it. For example, like we've seen with their own funds that they're introducing and, and other new parts of the business. Um, so if that's going down, that that doesn't help. However, I actually think given the re- the environment we're in, a lot, of, a lot of these figures are all right. And the valuation is very reasonable. From my own personal perspective, this was quite a s- small position anyway. It's got even smaller since I invested. It's probably been cut in half and I've not added to it. So it's it's a very small proportion of my portfolio. It's one or two percent and I don't intend to add to it. So I'm probably at a point where I'm thinking, well, I'm a better just selling it and just adding to something that that's actually of a meaningful size. But I think for now, I'm probably more of a mind that I'll hang on to it. Because um, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a few things that could hopefully cause it to turn a corner. John, what are your thoughts on these results and Hargreaves as a business? I mean, I don't think the results, obviously we see, we see the assets under management falling, but the rest of them weren't too bad. I think, as you mentioned though, the nature of the business that they're in and it essentially being commoditized 
is a big worry. I don't have my lifetime ISA with Hargreaves. I have it with AJ Bell. But interestingly, they dropped their platform fee to the same as as Hargreaves. And it is one of those things. It's, I see it more as the race to the bottom. There are lots of new players coming into it in the UK. And then you've got the really big boys like Vanguard. Launch, well, they launched direct-to-consumer in the UK a few years ago now. But them coming into the market and, you know, people potentially leaving HL and going there, that would really worry me if I was a Hargreaves shareholder. And I suppose for that reason and the nature, the nature of the industry, it puts me off investing, to be honest. I did think that Hargreaves fees were very high before and felt that it was probably only a matter of time before they were Push down because I think it was 0.45 percent, wasn't it? It was, were, yes. Un- under half a million quid, which, which I am. <laughs> um, but you, you know, in the longer term, you don't hope. You, you know, you hope to grow up bigger than that. But certainly compared with like interactive investor and some of the flat fees um, that they will charge, yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 I wouldn't be looking at it much further because of some of those fundamental reasons and. I think this probably confirms it, especially when we see that that price drop, the percentage fee drop in the LISA, and that's just a signal of it. Although maybe not, maybe it is uh, that they're just trying to, it's that those sort of the younger customers who are, can open LISAs and may be more inclined to use some of these free trade and um, low cost trading apps. I don't know, but probably, well, in fact, definitely not one for me. Yeah, in terms of these results, there's not, the results are actually all right. I think part of the problem, so we were actually just for a bit of background, we were originally meant to record this episode two or three weeks ago. Um, and then we had a scheduling difficulty. So we released a couple of interviews instead because, because we were then, I was then away. But in the time since the results have come out, that's when I've got this email about the LISA. And I think at the time the results came out, when I first looked at them, I was actually quite pleased because um, <laughs> there's not really anything that bad. But it's, it is just that email about the LISA because if they're dropping prices, that's just so key to my thesis on it that it overshadows the results, really. But and anyway, I, I, I have heard that if you call them up and you say you're going to leave, they'll cut your fees too. Which, oh, right. I'm not going to yeah. do that. <laughs> I couldn't do that as a shareholder. It wouldn't feel no. honest. Should we move yeah. on from one of my bad investments to one of yours? Oh, <laughs> that's harsh. That's harsh. Okay, Centrica. So it's owner of British Gas. They had their preliminary full year results out recently with revenue rising 61% to £23.7 billion, driven by higher gas and electricity prices alongside higher prices on retail tariffs. All areas of the business saw increases with British Gas Energy Division up 74.3%. Excluding last year's sale of Spirit Energy, underlying operating profit rose from £392 million to £2.8 billion. However, it was the group's energy marketing and trading and upstream divisions which accounted for 96% of the profits with strong production volumes and high energy prices. There's a lower retail-adjusted operating profit, including a small loss in the British Gas Services and Solutions, reflecting weak commercial performance and investment in customer service, support and pricing. British Gas Energy saw customers rise 4% to 7.5 million, 
but complaints rose 14% and adjusted operating profit down 39% to £72 million, with the group inheriting 150000 as the supplier of last resort as some of their competitors went under. Underlying net cash increased from £680 million to £1.2 billion, and underlying free cash flow rose from £1.2 billion to £2.5 billion. The existing £250 million share buyback programme is expected to be completed by May, and the group plans to extend this by a further £300 million. And this would equate to the group buying back around 10% of its issued share capital in total. A dividend of two pence per share has been announced, giving a full year dividend of around 3p per share or around 3%. In terms of valuation, Centrica has a market cap of £5.9 billion and trades at a forward price to book of £1.9 compared with a 10-year average of 2.72. I thought these results were very good overall, although the retail division is doing poorly. I do own Centrica and have done since before the energy price cap was introduced in 2017. I wouldn't buy any shares today, though, given the regulatory environment in the UK with price caps and windfall taxes. I probably should sell the shares on that basis, but psychologically it's quite difficult because I paid nearly £2 a share for for my stake in Centrica. So letting them go for a pound, yeah, it's probably a little bit like you with Hargreaves Lansdowne. As a proportion of my portfolio now, Centrica is tiny and it has been for a long time. In fact, I did... (laughs) This is the the very sad thing. I did have it in my ISA and during COVID when they were making huge losses and they scrapped the dividend, I took it outside my ISA. So I wasn't able to offset the loss. And then since having it outside the ISA, it's, I think I had it outside the ISA at about 35p and now we're up to a pound. So it's, it's the, the biggest gain in my portfolio in percentage terms. Um, so I'd actually have a capital gain to pay on it now, which is very depressing. But anyway, that's what I think of Centrica. It might be more attractive if it were domiciled in the States, but certainly in the UK, it's not a business that I'd be buying any more shares in. And if I didn't own any, I certainly wouldn't be taking the position. But Sam, what are your thoughts on these results from Centrica? I think the sort of as we'd expected. It's it's quite interesting following it because I think it's a very it's it's been quite an interesting cycle. I think for these because I think Centrica. I mean, I actually saw it with the, when these results came out. I remember seeing it on Twitter, and there were a few people who were more left leaning that was you know criticising it for like price gouging and stuff, and almost you know it's the same sort of political mm-hmm. heat we, we see with like Shell and BP. And I was just I didn't say anything, but I was just looking at it and thinking like you've clearly not followed this business for like any length <laughs> of time because for like the last decade it's almost been run as a charity. Like yeah. it's just it's like to, to like criticise it and the th- but it's really interesting because obviously what's what's actually driven the poor performance earlier on was yeah. all the switching and these these smaller suppliers and it was just bleeding customers and now all these smaller suppliers are starting going bust it's getting them back and doing quite well but but i think you know it's like we've seen with money supermarket earlier in the show i think within a couple of years we're back to the same old model of people switching so i don't think this is 
some kind of permanent change in Centrica's business. I think it's just a temporary pause in what is probably going to be a continued decline unless something fundamental changes in the industry. But yeah, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't touch this business and I, I wouldn't touch its industry either. But I, I think it, you know, it, it's looking better than it was five years ago, but that's, that's not really saying much. Um, well, I, I think the turnaround has actually happened now. It, it, they have, they have turned it around, but it is all coming from the upstream. They're not, it, they're not making the money from the retail division. And mm. they've inherited a lot of these company, oh, sorry, these customers because all of those small challenges were incredible. Well, they were badly run and they weren't hedged. And then the sort of, I suppose, slow and steady approach of Centrica and understanding the energy business much better than those pop-up competitors has shown that, you know, in the long run, it, it has worked for it. But it can't really make much money from those customers just because you've got the price caps in place. Yeah, and I, I think it will be interesting once that price cap's gone and stuff. Will, will those, you know, will you get a new generation of pop-ups? That's what I would be concerned with. Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether the government would change the regulation because of the problems that they've had and that effectively, well, you had Bold that got a government bailout, but they all went, well, most of them went bust. And then these sort of, you've got these supplies of last resort like British Gas and some of the other big players just having to take these essentially loss-making customers on. Mm. But these these aren't the kind of questions that I want to be having to answer. <laughs> yeah, isn't no. it best? Is the point? No, so it's, it's still a void absolutely. for me. Should we move on to a business that's quite a bit simpler to understand? Yes. Um, um, yeah. So. Well, we've got two. Similar or not? I don't know. I think they're pretty a similar. Okay, well, we've got the yeah the daddy and then the the European baby. Uh, we'll start with the but, baby then. Yeah, go for it. So we've got Coca Cola Hellenic Bottling Company, and basically that's the it was listed in Athens. It used to be the biggest stock listed on the Athens Stock Exchange, and then they moved to London. So now we get to look at them. But it's Coca Cola Hellenic Bottling Company, and what they do is they have the Coca Cola license in a mix of countries, which are mainly in. So Central and Eastern Europe, and then a few emerging markets. So the countries they operate in are Armenia, Austria, Belarus, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, Czech Republic, Egypt, Estonia, Greece, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, Montenegro, Nigeria, North Macedonia, Northern Ireland, Poland, Romania, Russia, Serbia, Slovakia, Slovenia, Switzerland and Ukraine. So they have come out with their full year results and organic revenue was up 14.2% and that compares to reported revenue, which was up 28.3%. So they've, I think they've had some wins on the exchange rates, excluding Russia and Ukraine, which are two of their markets that, as you can imagine, have been quite badly hit this year. Organic revenue was up 22.7%. Organic revenue per case was up 15.9%, benefiting from pricing and targeted actions to improve mix throughout the year. They've highlighted they had broad-based volume growth outside of Russia and Ukraine, led by their priority categories, sparkling, energy, and coffee. Execution excellence. I'm not going to read that out. It's just them congratulating themselves. Um, mm. And they said that they're gaining volume and more, and value share. In terms of free cash flow and earnings, they've said comparable earnings per share was up 7.7%. 
impacted by a higher tax rate and finance charges as expected. Free cash flow increased by 43.8 million and all these figures are in euros to 645.1 million due to improved profit generation and effective working capital management. Board of Directors has proposed an ordinary dividend of 78 cents a share, up 9.9% year on year and representing a 46% payout. And for emerging markets, organic revenue was up 5.5%, with 23.5% growth excluding Russia and Ukraine. Organic earnings before interest and tax declined 1.1%. Uh, so in, in terms of volumes, the volumes were up 12.4% on a reported basis and down 1.5% on an organic basis. Operating profit was down 11.9%, million, and net profit was down 24.1%, million. However, free cash flow was up 7.3%, as highlighted earlier. They've said that in terms of the outlook, they continue to face ongoing inflation and assume that the cost of goods sold and case increases will be by the low teen percents in 2023. They've said that the full year organic revenue fall of 1.5% was adversely impacted by declines in Russia and Ukraine, excluding those markets of organic volume growth was up 8.1%. So in terms of the actual markets... In the established markets, volumes were up 9.2% on a reported basis and 9.1% on an organic basis. And sales revenue was up 20% on a reported basis and 18.6% on an organic basis. They've said that's partly due to positive foreign currency movements from the Swiss franc. They also said they benefited from price increases in all markets throughout the year, as well as positive packaging category mix. In developing markets, Reported volumes were up 15.2% and so were organic and the sales revenue was up 25.9% reported and 29% organic. And they said that's driven by adverse foreign currency movement throughout the year from the Polish Zloty and the Hungarian foreigns. They've also said the segment benefited from double-digit volume growth across the main markets as well as from pricing initiatives and positive package and channel mix. And in the emerging markets... The reported change was a 12.9% increase, but the organic was a 10.9% decrease. And the net sales revenue was up 35.5% reported, but 5.5% organic. And they said that's due to the consolidation of Egypt from mid-January. So they, they acquired the Egyptian part of the business during the year, which is why there's such a big difference in those figures. And Moulton from 11 of August, as well as a stronger Russian ruble. Organic net sales revenue grew by 23.5% when excluding Russia and Ukraine. It also said that sales revenue benefited from pricing actions taken throughout the year, including proactively managing the impact of currency devaluation in Egypt and Nigeria. And there are a couple of points in the slides. Yeah, so the 645 million free cash flow, that represents a 14.1% return on invested capital. And they did a little slide on how the cost of coffee was doing. And excluding Russia and Ukraine, organic, organic volume was up 45% on that. Um, wow. Yeah, so developing and emerging markets seem to really like their coffee. <laughs> specifically their Costa coffee. Yes, very specifically Costa coffee. So in terms of valuation, the business trades a price-to-earnings ratio of 16 and a dividend yield of 2.82%. I think these are a pretty good set of results all things considered i think the valuation is pretty reasonable especially considering that the you know the ukraine and russian part of the business has basically been obliterated now when that comes back who knows um 
and to what degree, who knows? So you, you may, it probably is best to just assume that's gone. But even still, we've talked about it before. And what I really like about this business is it's reasonably valued. It's got good income. And I think it's got quite good growth prospects as well. I think these are, you know, in the emerging markets and the developing markets, you would hope, you well, you would expect that, you know, these Western brands like Coca-Cola become more and more popular as the countries become wealthier. And it also, it allows, I think what I like about Coca-Cola as well is it allows you to have an emerging markets play, but with one of the best brands in the world. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you were to try and like find some other emerging markets company, you know, it's it's not going to be a brand. You're sure to find a brand, you know, as well as Coca-Cola. So I I think these are pretty good results. And I, I really like this business. John, what are your thoughts on the results and the business? I would, yeah, largely agree with you. I suppose what you do have with this company compared with Daddy Coke is that, you know, extra degree of volatility reflecting the markets that it operates in. So I suppose it depends what you were looking for. But if you were looking for something with those potent, that potential for greater growth compared with sort of Daddy Coke, as it were, then HBC is definitely, well, it, it could be one of the ways to go. But as we saw when Russia invaded Ukraine, the shares did jump off a cliff and they still haven't recovered from that. So they, they are the sort of things that you'd have to be prepared to deal with. But if you took a long-term view, yeah, I quite like it. I think as well, you know, if you're building a portfolio and you're thinking, well, actually, where can I add more exposure to emerging markets in a less risky way? There's always going to be some risk. But as well, like if you were to compare that to say, because you can just buy shares in Daddy Coke, obviously they pay like a they pay a fee, you know, yeah. to Coca-Cola every year. But when when you look at that, the, the amount they make up of Coca-Cola's business, it's tiny. Mm, so if you were yeah. buying Coca-Cola, it's a fantastic business, but you would be buying it for very different reasons. You, you, I think it would make much less sense to buy Coca-Cola and say, well, actually, I'm buying this because I think the emerging markets are really going to you know, do well because it's such yeah. a small part of the business, although you would hope it can contribute. Whereas with this, you've just got that pure emerging markets exposure, yeah, which is what I quite right. like. I mean, we have talked about it a little bit with BritVic and um, AG Bar in terms of you've got a little bit, well, you have more exposure to emerging markets, particularly Brazil with mm. Britvic and that making it you know a little bit more exciting. But I agree, it's not a pure play. And you do see it with other consumer goods companies. I mean, what part of the reason I like Unilever, for example, is that it's got quite a lot of emerging markets exposure. What's the smaller one? The one that's got Imperial Leather? Because they've got a lot of like, emerging markets they're quite big in africa that, aren't they pz cousins that's the one yeah but yes that's that that is that is true can make some of these companies a, a little bit more well definitely more exciting but anyway shall we move on to daddy coke a very similar business <laughs> well yeah and a company that doesn't really need much introduction Probably worth pointing out that it isn't just Coke. It's got a wide portfolio of other soft drinks, including Fanta and Sprite. And then we've also, as you mentioned, Sam, got Costa Coffee, which they acquired a few years ago now, actually. And it had previously been part of Whitbread. Anyway, they had their full year results out recently with organic revenues growing 15% to $10.1 billion in the fourth quarter, driven by price rises. Underlying operating income rose 21% to $2.1 billion, 
and strong revenue growth more than offset higher operating costs and marketing spend. Net debt fell slightly from $26.8 billion to $25 billion, whilst full-year free cash flow also fell by $1.7 billion to $9.5 billion. Going forward, the group expect organic revenue growth of between 7 and 8%, and excluding currency headwinds, they expect underlying earnings per share to grow between 7 and 9%. In terms of valuation, Coke has a market cap of $258 billion and trades at 23 and a half times forward earnings ahead of a 10-year average of 22, and it currently yields 3%. I think it's an incredible business with one of the world's, if not the world's strongest brands and gross margins of around 60%. As you alluded to before, Sam, it's difficult to see where the growth comes from. Although Coke do point out or point uh, to growing populations in the emerging markets and the coffee offering, plus their energy drinks, as to those being areas where they expect to see the future growth coming from. But it is very expensive for a company of this size at 23 and a half times forward earnings. And it's a, that that's the only reason I wouldn't buy it at the moment is just the valuation. Otherwise, I think it's a fantastic company and I'd love to own it. I think it's interesting as well. So the article I'm looking at here, it, it does actually talk about the relationship between Coke and companies like Coca-Cola, Hellenic Bottling Company. I'll just find it. Where does it say it? Oh yeah, a key thing differentiating differentiating coca-cola from most other drinks makers is its operating model rather than investing in big manufacturing plants coca-cola partners with and holds stakes in local bottling companies in what's known as the coca-cola system that allows the group to keep costs down and supports its industry-leading gross margins which hover around the 60 percent mark instead coke concentrates its efforts on selling the syrups themselves and marketing its brands directly to consumers so basically it sells the syrups to Coca-Cola HBC and also it will own a stake in HBC. But yeah, in, t- in terms of Coca-Cola, I think, you know, they are very impressive results. I think for a company of that size, um, it does just show the pricing power that it's been able to rise, raise revenues double digits. And I, th- I think it's a fairly inflation-proof business. I don't think it's going to outpace inflation in terms of price increases because it's just not that kind of product. But people will always be willing to pay the real deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People will always be willing to pay for Coca Cola. So I think, I think as prices increase, you can expect Coca Cola to go up with it. Yeah, in, in terms of valuation, it's pretty expensive. And also, I, I just think, I, yeah, you know, compare that to Coca Cola Helene, bottling company, which I think is a better opportunity, and it's, it's actually the cheaper business, a P of sixteen. In terms of the dividend mm. yield, there's very little difference. So I, I would just be buying Coca Cola Helene, bottling company over Coke. Every time, really. I appreciate mm. it is riskier, but... Yes, yeah, as we've seen. But, you know, you, you're getting it at a discount, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, then. Of the six companies we've covered today, Money Supermarket, Nestle, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Centrica, Coca-Cola, Hellenic Bottling Company, and Daddy Coke, if you had to buy one, which one would it be? Current valuations, I would probably go with Money Supermarket, actually. That would be my pick. And it's going on my watch list for sure. I was torn between Money Supermarket and Coca-Cola Hellenic Bottling Company. So I think 
I, I, there's very little in. I do like them both. So I think just to be just to be controversial, I'll go with Coca-Cola, Hellenic Bottling Company, seeing as you just picked Money Super Money Supermarket. Okay, very good. Well, thank you again for listening, and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.